Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're going full fit bar on the Gegen Pod today. Scottish football fans, particularly Celtic and Ange Postacoglu fans, this one's for you. We've got expert John McGinley in the Gegen Pod today, alongside former Premier League star Thomas Sorensen. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Let's get into the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This is the Gegen Pod. It is a Gagan pod with a bit of a difference this week, but one of our regulars is in between the sticks. Thomas Sorensen, it's great to have you back. Yeah, great to touch on a, you know, a bit of a Scottish theme this morning. Indeed, because we have Optus Sports Celtic contributor and the editor of 67 Hail Hail. You will have seen his name all over the Optus Sport website and app, and he's been a previous contributor to the Gagan pod in the past. John McGinley. John, welcome back. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me to talk about Ange Postacoglu and and the Celtic journey that continues apace. Well, I, I've got to say, when when you say thanks for having me back to talk about Ange Postacoglu and Celtic, <laughs> I mean, uh, did you ever imagine uh, that your career would be engulfed with the fascinations of an entire country of twenty six million people, uh, absolutely riding every kick of the ball? Uh, for Celtic through the lens of Ange Postacoglu, notwithstanding that Australia, you know, historically does have quite a high uh, Scottish expat or Scottish heritage population, myself included. Um, but it's not all Celtic, and and certainly a case where one country has been swept up behind one manager. Did you ever actually envisage it would come to this? No, I didn't actually. It, it has been surreal at points for. I, th- I would suggest Celtic. I would suggest it's been surreal at points for Ange Postacoglu. On a personal perspective, it's been quite surreal for me at times to, um, you know, find an audience in Australia of people who are so eager to find out about Celtic and you know what's going on on a day to day basis with Ange. Um, it's been a thrilling ride, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of people from Australia continue to get in touch with me, um, trying to find out the latest news, find, trying to find out the latest opinion on, on how it's all going. So. It's a pleasure for me to be able to uh, provide some sort of information and analysis that you know people can you know find <laughs> disagree with or agree with along the way. John, after the Scottish FA Cup semi-final at the weekend, Celtic are now closing in on a domestic treble and back-to-back league championships. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the the trophies are part and parcel, and the expectations of being one of the big clubs in Scotland. You know, Celtic would say the biggest club in Scotland. But I guess what's the perception at the moment of how Ange Postacoglu is managing the team? Because it's very easy for us to look purely at the results and judge it purely on you know perhaps a domestic treble is is in the offing. But how is he actually being received as the manager as far as game-to-game, performance-to-performance, and also his construction and, and management and organisation of the squad? You know, it sounds emotive for me to say this, but I would genuinely suggest that Ange Postacoglu at the moment has the the heart and soul of Celtic in the palm of his hand, so to speak. He's, he's so in touch with his supporters. Um, I would suggest that any detractors that he may have had when he came into the club, either in the, in the Scottish media or or the Celtic support or any supporters, really, that's all been washed away by the success and 
and, and the kind of the football and the progression that's been seen in his team over the last 20 to 24 months. It's been an exciting ride and, and there's been ups and downs along the way. Um, but I think generally at the moment, people just see Ange Postacoglu as, as a, a pure born winner and someone who's built a winning football team. Um, and in Glasgow, all that matters is winning football games. Um, so the fact that he's managed to, to have done that so consistently um, and delivered, you know, he's delivered a Scottish League Cup th- this season. He's on the brink of another Scottish Premiership title. And as you say, there's one step to go in the Scottish Cup as well. And and the treble in Scotland remains a special achievement. It's actually only been done um, seven times in Celtic's history. If Ange does it, it would be, he would become, you know, the, the, it would be the eighth time that they managed to do that. Only a handful of managers have managed to do it. And, and the managers that have done it are part of the fabric and, and woven into the story of Celtic Football Club. So if Ange does manage to get over the line and, and do this and, and secure this achievement, then he writes his own story in the chapter of the entire history of Celtic Football Club, which is long and you know famous, as, as a lot of people know. Uh, John, you know, we are obviously sitting a bit further outside uh, than you are. You go to the games, you, you, you know, you're on the ground there. You know, if you had to look at what... What is actually the reason for the success? Is is it signings? Is it man management? Is is you know you know we I love to hear his his press conferences. Uh, you know we we heard this week uh, you know the bit of a spat with uh, Michael Beale that he was lucky to be in the position he was in. Um, you know what do you see as the big reason for 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 all this success and, and uh, that he's had? You know it, it's a bit of all of the above, Thomas. I, I would suggest that the overriding thing throughout all of that is. The unity that he's managed to bring to the club. He's united the fans with the squad. He's united the fans with the club. And everyone's pushing in the same forward direction. And I think Postacoglu has taken it upon himself to be the focal point of that. And so everything that he does, you know, and everything that the team does, whether it's winning games, you know, the, the performances they put in, or or you know, what we see on the pitch. Ange is obviously very calculated and knows exactly what he's doing off the pitch too. So whether it is signings, whether it is his conduct in the media, Celtic fans are, are resonating with all of that at the moment. Like it's it's honestly a firing on all cylinders kind of thing. It's kind of like Ange's word is is you know gospel for the Celtic supporters at the moment, regardless of what he says. So it's it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I, I would suggest, and again, it, it sounds as I said at the start of the show, it's almost surreal to say this, but it does feel like this is a generational time to be supporting Celtic and to have a manager in place that everyone identifies with so much. Um, it doesn't happen often. And as a routine as it might seem for, you know, someone that outside, you know, someone outside might see what Celtic are doing at the moment as quite, quite routine and, and, you know, they're winning games, they're winning trophies, that's what Celtic do. But it doesn't feel like that for, for a lot of the Celtic supporters. It doesn't feel routine. This actually feels special and and beyond the norm at the moment, which is what is so exciting. Now, in the Australian media, we obviously consume a lot of the English press as well, as opposed Mm -hmm. to, say, the Scottish press. Um, How destabilising has it been about the constant speculation that Ange Postacoglu has been linked to various jobs? Uh, You think back to when Graham Potter left Brighton, that's when it first started. So we're talking a good six months Mm -hmm. now. But I I guess the, the thing is that does any of that penetrate the bubble in Scotland or is this an echo chamber that we in Australia indulge ourselves in that hasn't necessarily made it into the regular Scottish media uh, rotation? No, it's, it's very noisy. You know, I would say that. Um, 
I'm not sure it would say it was destabilizing. I'm not sure if it's piercing the Celtic bubble at, at their training center. Ange is obviously brushes it off as as he does. It is very noisy though. There's no doubt about it. It does make headlines here when it comes around, um, because you know, as you can imagine, you know, Australia likes English football a lot. Scottish people like English football a lot too. So um, we're right on their doorstep, and naturally, it all kind of blends in and, and feeds into each other. I would suggest it was an annoyance for Celtic fans more than a destabilising thing or a thing that they think might be on the verge of happening at the moment. Um, So it's one of those things that a lot of people are putting up with and just kind of getting on with. It is interesting sometimes when it comes around, depending on who's reporting it, depending on what outlet a link was reported in, um, depending on what has actually been said in the substance of the reports, it can be interesting and and engaging to, to, to get into but at the moment, it feels like Ange, in particular, is so laser-focused on on what this project is and, and the heights that he can take it to, which he says, in his own words, that you know Celtic are still not at the level that he wants them to be at. So uh, Ange still sees Celtic as there's a way to go here with what he's doing with this team. Yeah, and, and John, what do you think about you know the, the draws to actually stay at, at Celtic? Is it to... To, to go to the Champions League and, and uh, you know, you know really take Celtic to Europe because, you know, we have to be honest, you know, they got two draws in the Champions League this season, uh, finished mm-hmm. bottom uh, of the group stage. Is, is that something that can entice him to, to stay? Or, or, or do you think, you know, does he see it as a, as a sort of a little bit of a longer-term project? Or, you know, if a Tottenham or if some of the big clubs come in, you know, could that... <laughs> Could that be a, a way out for him? The, the realities of the European thing are, are absolutely inescapable, as you say, Thomas. I mean, I think the group stage this season was 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 pretty frustrating for a lot of Celtic fans, I would say. Um, but at the same time, in the context of, of where Celtic were before and the fact that they hadn't actually competed in the, the, the group stage of the Champions League for, for quite a good few years, I think when you look at something like you know, back-to-back-to-back qualifications for the Champions League. I think that starts to make a difference in terms of Celtic having the capability to start to compete with these teams. Not just in the the revenue it generates, but just in, you know, the repeated nature of of playing these kind of games. Ange talks a lot about players experiencing things in the moment and learning from it. And I know a lot of managers have a lot of that kind of in chat when when their team might not do so well in in a tournament or a or, or, a, or a league campaign, but Ange's big thing that he he does see improvement in this team at the European level. I think, you know, for, for next season at least, that is the driver for him. I think there will be a build-up and there will be, you know, preparation in this team for this group stage in the autumn because the if they go on to clinch the Scottish Premiership title, which is almost assured at the moment, then it does mean direct qualification into the groups. There's no qualifiers, there's no messing about in that sense. And so there'll be a real build-up to, to this group stage. And I do think Ange is motivated to do something with Celtic in Europe um, in some capacity. So from the way you're talking, John, if I was to ask you what are the odds Ange starts next season at Celtic and then what are the odds he finishes next season at Celtic, I'm guessing you're going to be giving me a pretty short price at this point. Yeah, I, I do think it's odds-on that he's in charge this, you know, at the start of the Celtic season. I mean, anything can happen with football, as, as you guys know. So, you know, you don't want to to, to guarantee anything. And, and Ange hasn't guaranteed anything along the way. But there was interesting quotes that came from Ange. I think it was maybe around six weeks ago now, 
where he kind of told reporters after all the speculation that, you know, everyone might be surprised for how long he is at Celtic. And, and you know, the, the thing about the, the Ange to England stuff that, that, you know, I think some people might not take into consideration sometimes is that Ange is very astute. He knows, he knows the scene down there at the moment. He knows the situation with the turnover of managers. Um, he knows... You know, for for instance, the Leeds job was one that he was very well, you know, very strongly linked to in, in the sense of media noise, um, and and look at what that's what's happening at Leeds now. You know, things change very quickly. I think for Ange to move on from Celtic, there will be an alignment of um, values and ambition from the club that that try to come in for him, and I don't think Ange is going to move unless that alignment feels right because I think he knows how. Um, how fickle sometimes top level football can be at the moment, and I think you know it will have to be the right club in the right situation for to take Ange away from Celtic, and that's not in the sense of a size of a club or, or how big a club are. I think it will just have to feel right for him. And at the moment, you know, a lot of the times when when jobs come up at the moment in England, sometimes it, it's just not feeling right for a lot of managers. Is there a contingency place in the event Ange goes? Is there a, a nominal? candidate who's a rising star in Scottish football or even the prospect of a, a manager like Brendan Rodgers coming back given he's currently on the market and if Ange was to go if Tottenham were to take the plunge for example do you think the fan base would uh, say Ange thank you you leave with our blessing or do you think they'd feel a little bit shortchanged that he'd be going after just two seasons in charge? I mean you know how emotional football fans can get so I'm sure there would be a few people <laughs> who would um, take issue with it. I think I think what you know Celtic fans. I think what they would appreciate is just um, leaving with some stability. Now, Brendan Rodgers was a hero for a lot of Celtic uh, fans when he was manager, um, but the way he left the club left a sour taste in people's mouths. And it wasn't because he left; it was because he left mid-season. It's because he left in February when Celtic were pushing for trophies. I think if Ange left within a summer, you know, within a summer period, whether it's this summer, next summer, the summer after. I think Celtic fans would would be hopefully be um, growing up about it and wishing well in his way because of what he's you know the, the whirlwind that he's brought to Glasgow in his time here, um, that has been so so satisfying. I think if Ange were to leave in the middle of a season, obviously that would be a problem for a lot of people because um, no one likes to see that. To be quite frank, but I think again Ange is a man who is very aware of all that. He's a, he's very aware of legacies. He's very aware of what he leaves behind him. Um, so I think. If if Ange does move on one day, it'll be done from stability. In terms of candidates, I, there's nothing like that at the moment. I, I, that's what I mean about the the noise of of it all being um, perhaps surface level rather deep rooted in a kind of insecurity that Ange will leave Celtic, you know, anytime soon. So it's not. I I don't think the club are lining up anyone or or paying too much heed to, to, to all of this at the moment. Um, I think everyone's quite comfortable with the way things are, are moving forward. And again, it does feel like, you know, now there'll be another ramp up towards this Champions League group stage. Uh, John, and, and when we look at the team and, and the players, there's obviously, you know, a lot of interest in, in Ange, but uh, we've got another player there, Aaron Moy, uh, who, who's, who's who's had a good season, you know, who's, you know, few people questioned when he was signed, Um you know, how have you seen his season go? Um, and also, like, personal interest, Matt O'Reilly. You know, he's got a bit of a Danish heritage. Uh, so from my perspective, I think he's had a breakthrough through season as well. Uh, and the players he's obviously brought in from, from Japan. You know, how, how do you see those players, and, and especially Aaron Moy, uh, and, and the season they've had? 
the Aaron Moy Celtic thing has been a success for all parties, I, I would say. You know, for Moy initially, you know, it was about having a club where he was training at a good level and, and picking up appearances ahead of the World Cup. He had a strong World Cup with Australia. And, he, you know, when he came back from the World Cup, he was, you know, e- exceptional for a period of around two months, I would say. He was in the team every week. He was scoring goals. He was arguably the best player on the pitch for for most of of the matches in that period after the World Cup. And he became a bit of a cult hero with with Celtic fans to the extent that they gave him, you know, Harry Kuehl's Daddy Kuehl song, you know, that, that, <laughs> and became so synonymous with his career. It started being used for Aaron Moy to, to, to you know, to great joy. And he, then he picked up an injury. And so it's been difficult for him to to kind of get back up to that to that level. I thought he was actually good against Rangers in, in the semi-final on Sunday. Um, he came on as a substitute and he was quite combative and physical and really getting stuck into the game. So that was a sign that he's getting back to the levels that you know brought him that kind of cult hero sta- status. I, I, all in all, I would suggest this season has been a success for all parties. And I think he signed a two-year deal when he when he came to Celtic. So next year will be you know the final year of that deal. And you know I could see him you know staying, but as Ange made perfectly clear with with Tom Rogic last year. You know, sometimes even if you've had a good season, because Tom Rogic did have a good season last year, even sometimes when you've had a good season, it's time to move on. So it'll be very interesting to see what Ange does in terms of the squad this summer. Um, you know, even a player like Matt O'Reilly, who I agree has been he's been fantastic. But you know, you think what's in store for him? What what plans does Ange have for that midfield trio um, moving forward? I think there's a lot of talent at Celtic right now, and the competition is so high to to earn a place in the team on a week-to-week basis. So be very interesting to see how, how Ange sees it, um, you know, with with that mind in mind of kind of moving to the next level in Europe. Well, speaking to moving to that next level, I, I was trying to workshop uh, putting together a group stage mm-hmm. that Celtic would fancy their chances of getting out of, trying to think, could they get Real Sociedad as the Spanish team? Could they get Lons as the French team? Uh, could they get Union Berlin as the German team? And then inevitably you think, yeah, well, that that's true, but they could end up with Manchester City or Barcelona or uh, a really difficult opponent. John, when you think about who's out there in the jungle, and we saw that Celtic had a tricky group this season that they impressed in, but they did not get out of, who actually do you think uh, lands in a group with Celtic that gives them the best chance of getting out? Is it a specific team? Is it teams from a specific country? Is it uh, specific styles of football that may not be able to handle uh, the emotion and and sort of frenetic pace of a Scottish team? I think... The the problem is here is that Celtic are are almost guaranteed to be a pot four team again, which puts you behind the eight ball, you know, immediately because it's it's so difficult as a pot four team. And and I looked at the, into this kind of this season, you know, ahead of of the group stage this season, you know, statistically the percentage of teams who were in pot four who make it even into the third place spot and and drop into the Europa League is very low. Never mind qualifying for the last sixteen. So when you're a pot four team, it's it's, it's immensely difficult to, to do that um i don't think there's specific teams and, and specific countries out there i think you know it'd be exciting to see an english team come to celtic park i think that adds fire and and a bit of fire in the belly that, that can sometimes be a motiva- motivating factor for for a team like celtic and really really like the atmosphere at celtic park to, to a new level but i think there's danger in every pot and every team and sometimes you know when it's a bigger team sometimes 
you know, the, you, you almost fancy your chances a little bit more in, in the home games because the fans get up for it so much when it when it might be a team with a slightly, uh, you know, lesser reputation or uh, lesser stature than sometimes those are the teams that just take you apart <laughs> as dangerous teams in their own right um, without all the baggage that comes with it. So I think it'll be a mixture of glamour and, and quality teams and I think Celtic will run at it 100 miles an hour, but I think it'll be immensely difficult again. Uh, John, I, I think, you know, you touched on it there. You know, I, I have been uh, at Celtic Park on a Champions League night. Uh, I was a guest of Thomas Gravison back in the day. Uh, and we all know about Anfield and Liverpool and, you know, the atmosphere that's created there. I must say Celtic Park, uh, you know, that is uh, one of the great advantages I think Celtic will have in the Champions League. And I think they, due to that, at least at home, can compete with, with any other teams. Uh, obviously, this season was probably an anomaly. Uh, but you look at what Rangers did as well in the Europa League. You know, so I think that's that's mm-hmm. the strength that that you you know that on a night at Celtic Park you can take on any team and and with a bit more experience next year, you know maybe a few signings. Uh, you know, I've I've got confidence that that Celtic can actually, uh, you know, do a fair bit better at least uh, and potentially a top two in a group. Yeah, I mean, I think you know top three is certainly achievable. I, you know, I, you know, I I really do believe that. And then you know if Celtic. You know, bag the riches of the Champions League group stages, get you know, finish third or above, and guarantee themselves European football after Christmas. You know, whether it's in the Champions League or the Europa League, that is really, I would suggest, the goal and what Ange and the team will be aiming for. Um, and as you're right, I mean, Celtic pass electric on a European night. The, the, you know, the European history and and the standards that have been set by teams in the past is so strong, and so fans remember that. You know. And says a lot. It's a generational memory, you know. You know, fans believe in it and you know dream of it. And so when the, the matches come around, I mean, there is there is only three home matches in a group stage. They're all special and they're all massive events. And so I do think Celtic Park can be a factor this year. It, it, you know, we competed so well against Real Madrid for a half for forty five minutes at Celtic Park, and then it all kind of fell apart. The, you know the. The bridge that needs gap this year is competing like that for the full 90 minutes and certainly beyond an hour. So, um, you know, the, the jury is out on that, as we say. But again, like you, you know, you have hope um, that, that things can be still, you know, strong for, for Celtic in Europe. Well, let's talk about the broader context of Scottish clubs in Europe because Rangers making the Europa League final meant that the coefficient got a bit of a boost. That'll be reflected in next season's European rankings. Didn't count towards this season's. But then you look at Hearts struggles. Celtic and Rangers both didn't win a game in the group stage. Dundee uh, bombing out of the Conference League with that 7-0 loss against AZ Alkmaar. So, John, that won't be reflected in next season's European placings, but just how big of a precipice is Scottish football about to drop off? Does does it counterbalance Rangers' run to Europa League final versus what happened for Scott, uh, for Celtic and Rangers in the group stage this year? Or does it put a lot of pressure on Scottish teams next season to go and defend those points so that the Scottish champion does automatically go into the group stage rather than having to qualify? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the way that the UEFA coefficient is designed is... It's almost designed to be cyclical around, you know, the kind of eight to fourteen mark. Because what happens is, um, if you're lower down the coefficient, you might be playing in lesser competitions, um, but you're still picking up strong coefficient points, and then that 
puts you up the table and then your team's competing in more difficult competitions and so you might not do as well and then you start dropping down again. Um, as the situation as it stands is that obviously this year's champions automatically qualify for the group stage and next year's champions will also qualify for the next year's um, group stage. Um, Scotland will remain a top 10 team next year as well. But I agree, I, I do think, you know, there is a bit of pressure on the teams to perform this year and next year. Um, you know, they, they need to because they need to stay in that kind of top 10 bracket. And it's especially important, important as UEFA continue to tweak and kind of play with the formats. Obviously, there will be a new format from the 2024-25 season that is going to have a big bear in, um, more money available, um, no parachute from the Champions League into the Europa League. It is all a big change. So I think it's important while, you know, the the, the landscape at the moment is stable, that, that Scottish sides can perform as well as they can so they can, you know, have as much coefficient just going into the, the kind of new era as they can. All right. Well, my next question then is about European football broadly. You mentioned there the changes to the Champions League format and the Swiss model, which is coming. And, and I mean, people who play football manager will have experienced already. And it really looks like such a, a horrendous mishmash compared to the group stage and knockout. So we'll leave that as UEFA's problem for a couple of years time. But my, my question is, and this is a, a very well-worn topic, but it needs to be asked. Is there any renewed agitation for Celtic or Rangers to join the English league system? Or is there even any discussion around whether or not one or both of these teams could latch themselves back onto the Super League conversation, given that uh, they were very much not part of the conversation a couple of years ago when Super League really blew up and uh, obviously got shot down within a couple of days? So what's interesting about this is that the Celtic chairman, Peter Lawwell, who was formerly the chief executive, um, who has returned to the chairman capacity recently, is very aligned with the UEFA and very aligned with the European Club Association. I think he's actually part of the competitions committee on UEFA. He's part of that board. So he's very, you know, he's, you know, Lawwell over the years has um, been a diplomat, shall we say, for Celtic on the European scene and very much so, and has very strong links with some of the, the power the power players and, and the big hitters when it comes to decisions of that nature. So I can't see Celtic doing anything um, outside the banner of UEFA. And that's what makes this new format that UEFA are bringing in so interesting. Because for me, it's a bit like when they tried out little formats in the early 90s um, with different group stages and a kind of a group stage that went straight into a semi-final, etc., that kind of flopped a little bit before they introduced the four team groups. So it'll be very interesting to see if this Swiss model is a success, because if it isn't, I think there is a genuine conversation for UEFA to have about starting to build a European continental pyramid of some sort um, that that is based on merit, which was obviously the big problem that a lot of people had with the Super League in terms of no promotion, relegation, etc. I think if UEFA came up with a model of... A, you know, a regional model with perhaps a regional pyramid that feeds into greater and greater levels. I think, you know, a team like Celtic would obviously be interested in having those conversations. But I can't see Celtic doing anything without, you know, anything out with UEFA's jurisdiction. And that includes England, that includes the Super League, that includes all of that. Um, and it remains to be seen because, you know, as you talk about, you know, the reason this comes up so often is because there is such a great imbalance in Scottish football that is almost impossible to fix because of the revenues involved. And the revenues involved 
you know, Celtic's revenue and the, the revenue advantage that they have over other teams, you know, it's not because they have a sugar daddy. It's not because, you know, they have um, some mysterious benefactor pumping money into the cash. All of Celtic's cash comes from the fans that attend matches. So you can't reasonably say to Celtic to, to start revenue sharing to the extent that it, it provides a more competitive Scottish Premiership. And it's a problem that's reflected in a lot of leagues around Europe at the moment. It's not just Scotland. There's many, many leagues around Europe at the moment where there's two or three teams who dominate the rest of the, the teams. So I think it is a conversation that UEFA might inevitably have to have. And I think it does depend on the success of this Swiss model format that you're talking about. Yeah, but it's also an ideological question because, as you say, Glass, sorry, yeah. Glasgow and, and you know Glasgow Rangers and Celtic are carrying the, the Scottish League and, and embodies that and is the picture and, and the, the, the front page to, to the rest of the world as well. And if you took that out... You know, you'd literally, uh, you know, not kill the Scottish League off, but but it would be, uh, you know, lose the interest and 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 all the media and, and everything else and the income and, uh, and 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 you know, yes, you know, we see Swansea, Cardiff, uh, the story now with Wrexham and and other teams, obviously, you know, playing in, in the English leagues. But I think for Scotland, I think it, it'll be. You know, I don't think it'll be a, a workable model to, to for them to join. Um, you know, and and I don't know how you see it. You you've sort of answered it a little bit, but you know, I don't know. I, I couldn't see the the Celtic fans wanted to uh, you know uh, you know move uh, across the border to play. Well, I, I guess that was uh, funny. You mentioned Wrexham, Thomas, because you know if Swansea and Cardiff <laughs> having their time in the Premier League wasn't enough to do it, has there been any renewed discussion about how the home nations are structured with the rise of Wrexham, or has has that not really uh, made an impact on the Scottish discussion beyond the celebrity factor and obviously the heartwarming story that is uh, Wrexham's climb back into the football league? I mean, the the Wrexham story is a big one here, as you can imagine. Again, it's, it's right on our doorstep and um, people are following with interest what they're doing in the National League. In terms of kind of pyramids and restructures, I don't think it has had any tangible effects on those discussions. Um, and again, like like Thomas says there, I think taking Celtic Rangers out of Scotland without significant compensation and parachute payments and all that, all that would come with that and to the other teams or having some sort of um, meritocratic, you know, way for them to to gain promotion into any super league or or any sort of you know renewed structure um, would obviously be a, a killer blow to the Scottish league. So there's so many factors, emotional ones, but also just logistical ones that make it a bit of a nightmare for to consider beyond you know the theoretical kind of discussion that we're having at the moment. Well, I, I'm going to ask not for you to give us a, a sort of a, a check on the sentiment. I'm just going to ask for your opinion alone. Is the current size of the Scottish Premiership and the format with the league split right at the moment? If you had a magic wand and could institute any changes, are there any you'd make or are you happy to roll with the format as is? Do you think it's serving its purpose uh, for Scottish football broadly? It's so difficult. It's so difficult. Um, As I say, I do think there is problems within Scottish football. Um, for me, it's just so hard to fix because of, of how those issues arise. And as I say, a lot of it is income-based. And so even when we're talking about the TV deal that is on offer to Scottish football, when you divide that by the, the 12 clubs in the Scottish Premiership, it only amounts to around two or three million pounds a season. And so even if you took that two or three million pounds away from Celtic or Rangers, 
Celtic and Rangers, uh, you know, and distributed that amongst the rest of the league. Celtic and Rangers would by far and away still have the greatest income in the league and it probably wouldn't make much tangible difference. Um, if I had a magic wand, I, I would probably look for, for, for Scottish football to kind of perhaps reduce the number of professional clubs. The SPFL might be bigger than a lot of people realise. There is the top flight and then there's three divisions below it and all of them are member clubs of the SPFL who vote on SPFL matters. It might be an idea to kind of sh- streamline that in some way um, and have a a more unique and kind of um, distinct SPFL of, of maybe just a, a top flight and a second flight and then, you know, a, perhaps a pyramid underneath that. But that would annoy a lot of regional supporters, a lot of people around Scotland who have community teams and have, you know, smaller clubs who love their club and love going to the football every week and don't really care about Celtic and Rangers. And believe me, there's a lot of people like that in Scotland. You know, from the outside looking in, Scottish football is, of course, all about Celtic and Rangers, but there's very a lot of proud clubs in Scotland and a lot of proud supporter bases that aren't going to take any massive changes lightly. Um, so it's such a difficult uh, situation to solve. If it was me, for me, I would have fewer clubs and I would have a more a more focused top flight, perhaps extend the number of teams in the top flight as well uh, and see how that works. But again, that brings up so many issues because what Sky Sports want, who have the TV deal, is they want four Celtic and Rangers derbies a season. That's what they want because that's what brings in the viewing figures. So it will always be built around that while Celtic and Rangers you know, exist in, in this well, indulge me one media talking about the media question, John, because I know a, a diehard Hearts fan uh, who normally has to resort to, um, you know, piracy and VPNs in order to watch his team because the international distribution of the Scottish Premiership is nowhere near what uh, our Optus Sports subscribers get to enjoy when it comes to the Premier League and La Liga. Uh, We do not live in a a media landscape where it's every game live um, for a price. Uh, So why has the Scottish uh, professional football leagues been so slow to act on their international distribution? Surely Ange Postacoglu opening up Australia to them even more so than what was there before uh, has got some wheels in motion with regards to international distribution of TV rights, not just for Rangers and Celtic, but for the entire competition. I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think the situation at the moment is that basically um, people around the world have access to, the, to a feed that is basically the match that gets shown live within Scotland. And, and, if you, and if there isn't a match being shown live in Scotland, you don't get to see the game unless you subscribe to individual club TV packages. Um, there is no unified structure here. Recently, the the SPFL have brought in a kind of um, centralised marketing division um, that looks to address some of the commercial side of this that we're talking about. But in, in terms of broadcast, I can't see anything changing in the future because they actually just signed a new TV deal um, with Sky Sports to keep, you know, the kind of almost the status quo with certain tweaks here and there um, until 2029. Um, and it does seem to a lot of, you know, perhaps more modern, media-savvy people, that uh, this is a regressive TV deal that Scottish Scottish football has signed up to. The SPFL's argument would be that they're constantly looking to protect the match experience and that they don't actually want this proliferation of matches, you know, with this kind of, you know, and so you even see it in some of the Scandinavian leagues now where basically every match is available on some sort of streaming service. The clubs in Scotland actually don't want it because they feel they want to protect 
fans going through the turnstiles and paying their money through the turnstiles because they feel that is the lifeblood and the foundation of what Scottish football is. Other people see it differently. Other people think that even if you, you know, build this, um, if you if you build a more open uh, media environment, that it won't impact um, the supporter bases. It won't impact numbers that matches. And I actually subscribe to that to that belief. I think the SPFL should be looking at opening it up much more, not just for the international market, but even the domestic market. I think there's ways for them to do it. Um, certainly in the, in the modern age with um, you know, streaming technology so readily available at the moment. Um, I think it's a bit of a nightmare that they're not doing it, to be honest with you. And I think by signing up to this TV deal again to 2029, I think they're showing that they're behind the curve, unfortunately. Get, getting left behind. You've got to be global citizens. Thomas, your thoughts on on the landscape? Oh, yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, it, it tends to be, you know, a lot of... You know, a lot of focus on on money. Obviously, uh, that's what makes the, the world go round. But but I, I like the idea of, of protecting the you know the the atmosphere and, and the you know the fans that have been supporting the clubs uh, as well. So so it's this constant you know trying to get the most out of what you have and and what you can get and 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 also with the league format. You know, I I obviously follow the Danish league a lot and they have been searching for the right combination for for years and and and. They are actually doing a similar thing to to Scotland now, where they cut the league in in half as well, and and uh, and have a playoff for the title. So um, you know, it, it it's a constant thing that smaller countries uh, you know have to work out and and get the maximum out of. So you know, I, I you know, it's it's a tough issue. Let's leave the league there and just finish, John, with a couple on the Scottish national team because they are top of their Euro 2024 qualifying group. We got to see it on Optus Sport, the Euro 2024 qualifiers, when they beat Spain. And now in June, at the end of the season, they'll be playing Norway and Georgia. And this really did look like a group of death when it first came out because Erling Haaland and Martin Odegaard are playing for Norway. You've got Kvaraj Kvelia playing for Georgia off the back of his season with Napoli. So they're were landmines all over Group A, and yet Scotland are top dogs. Uh, how do you see this qualifying group shaking out? Because it honestly wouldn't shock me if we get to the end of it and Spain somehow misses out on a major tournament because there are match winners, seemingly, in every team in the group. Wow. That is a, that is a call. <laughs> that is a, that's an early call. Well, Bridgie, okay. Bridgie's not right. here this week, uh, Thomas, so someone needs to step up. Brave. It's brave. It's brave. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a big shout. You know, <laughs> okay, I like it. That, that Scotland result over Spain has really opened up the group, though, to, to be fair. I mean, it was a result that not many people were expecting. Um, and it's a, such an exciting group now, I agree. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if Scotland can kind of follow up, follow up now there's a little bit of expectation on the shoulders. There's a little bit of pressure to succeed in these matches against Norway and Georgia now. Um, and, and be interested to see how many points they can pick up. It's a very exciting time, to obviously, to be a Scotland fan. I would suggest, you know, all in, that Scotland performance against Spain and the result was probably one of the best I've seen in my lifetime as, as, a, as a Scotland fan. We have had victories over France in the past and in, 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 the, in the kind of 2000s. But they they always felt like almost fluky wins and and or, or kind of perhaps lucky wins in a way. I thought Scotland deserved that win over Spain, and and that was what was so thrilling about it is that they did a job on Spain. 
they counteracted what Spain were offering and offered something in return and, and got the goals needed to, to create a famous night. And I, I think that's why everyone's so excited at the moment. And it is difficult. And, you know, it's funny that, you know, Steve Clark is kind of, I always, you know, I because obviously I, I follow Australia a little bit more closely now and I, 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 see compari- I see a comparison between Steve Clark and Graham Arnold because Steve Clark might not play with the most progressive tactics or might not be the most fashionable choice of manager for a lot of people, but he's getting results at the moment. And just like Graham Arnold, you know, so um, you can't argue with it at the moment. And I think he's, he's, he's another manager who's managed to unify a group of players towards a common goal. Um, and you can see that spirit in the way that Scotland play at the moment. Well, just looking ahead of the Euros, obviously the World Cup drought, is there renewed hope with a 48-team tournament, John, that they will go to the United States, uh, Mexico and Canada in 2026? Or is it still going to be very tricky to get out of a UEFA group for the World Cup? It's going to be tricky, but there is absolutely belief. Um, I mean, uh, and again, I think that's what Steve Clark has, has brought to Scotland is a belief and a hope for the future. Um, and Steve Clark actually signed a new contract to 2026. So the Scottish FA have invested in the future of Steve Clark and this team. I think the, the the biggest factor for Steve Clark too is that the players believe in him, and you can see that in every game that they play. They play for this manager, and that's so potent. I think, um, and I think there is definite hope. And I, th- you know, I think Scotland fans hope they qualify for the Euros. I think they hope. I think they hope they qualify for the World Cup. As ever, it's dependent on the group you get. It's dependent on the journey along the way. But I do think there should be hope for Scotland to do something because I think Scotland have a good group of players. You know, you talk about some of the big stars for other countries. You know, Scotland have Andy Robertson. I know he's not had the, the best season with Liverpool. We've got Kieran Tierney, who's, who's kind of in and out of the team at Arsenal, who are obviously performing at a big level this season. But Scotland do have a lot of players playing in the Premier League. Um and I think this this generation of Scotland players can qualify for tournaments and should believe that they can. Yeah, and no, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, looking at the team, obviously McTominay as well, uh, you know, the, the starting lineup against Spain, there was only Carl McGregor really from the Scottish League, uh, um, you know, starting. So, you know, so they do have experience for, from that. Uh, and, and we know and we see it, uh, you know, around Europe and, and around with national teams that, you know, with the right manager, you can elevate, uh, you know, the sum of all the parts. And, and I think it seems that Scotland is doing that right now. And the, the two games they got coming up, Norway and, and Georgia, are, are for me, are, are crucial. If they can come through that with, let's say, four points, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think they are, are heading to the Euros. Uh, and, and, you know, I've got a, a good mate of mine down here in, in Australia who's, who's, who's proud Scottish and, it's a little bit of a, a running joke. We were talking before the World Cup that Scotland were, were going to get there and we were going to play Denmark and we were, you know, before the draw. And, and there's just this, you know, oh, well, we, we're so close, but we, we can't quite get there. But I think the times and the tides are, are turning now. I, I feel that, uh, yeah, there's momentum. And, uh, uh, and yeah, it should give everyone confidence. John, thanks for such a comprehensive chat on all things Celtic. And then we went off onto tangents about the Scottish Premiership and Scottish football. But it would have been remiss of us not to make the most of your knowledge while you were here. Um, For anyone that wants to follow your work, in addition to reading you on Optus Sport, where else can they find you? Yeah, you can find me at 67 Hail Hail, which is a website dedicated to Celtic and Celtic coverage. Also a YouTube channel where we have tens of thousands of subscribers at this point, I should add. Um, So if anyone wants to join along, on the journey of what we're doing and following Ange Postacoglu and Celtic along the way, they should look us up there and 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 you know 
join in. It's it's an enjoyable journey, um, fellas. It's really it is really fun and exciting, and there's um, ups and downs and drama and intrigue along the way. So everyone should jump on board. Stay with us on the Gagan Pod after this quick break. We'll have rapid fire, and Thomas Sorensen will be shooting from the hip with Premier League opinions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Gagan Pod. What a fantastic chat with John McGinley. But Thomas Sorensen, I have you for a rapid fire round to the finish line talking all things Premier League. Let's start with Leeds. Javi Gracia. Seemingly on the way out, Sam Allardyce on the way in for the last four games. This is pretty sensational stuff, really speaks to the desperation of Leeds United. What do you make of making this change so late in the season? It's desperation, isn't it? Um, You know, 12 games in charge, three wins. You know, it's obviously not good enough and and it's so tight there, the Gracia... You know, you know the people sit there and they they look at a bigger picture. They look at what you know what was done at, at Crystal Palace. They look at other teams where it has worked. Um, obviously, good old Roy, who, who you know who was a bit of a shock appointment. Now they're looking at a sixty-year-old Allardyce who's got his critics, uh, who's probably the anti-Bielsa, you know, philosophy uh, kind of guy. That, you know, I, I used to play with him. He was a, you know, he, he, you know, a lot of people sort of brand him as a you know basic uh, long ball direct but but he you know he was at the forefront of uh you know statistics and using everything uh you know even uh i think guardiola has been out there saying that you know he admire him for for the pioneer he was back in the day you know where he is now you know we can argue with it but but he's a great man manager and, and maybe that's what need, leads needs uh, but yeah, it reeks of uh, severe, severe <laughs> uh, desperation uh, to me because there, there's definitely no plan or support for Gracia for sure. Do, do managers need greater protection? Because Gracia has barely been in there for five minutes and, and now being moved on. Uh, is this just the nature of the beast in the Premier League or do you think we'll see some sort of managers association try to ensure greater respect for contracts or... Do you think it's just fair that a club in this situation should be able to make a change? And I ask that in the context of, do you think we're meandering towards the eventual situation where after 37 games, a club will sack their manager and just once a year bring in Sam Allardyce or Roy Hodgson into their 80s or their (laughs) 90s just to manage one game a year? Uh, No, we've seen it in the past. There's, you know, Allardyce, you know, in the past have, uh, you know, made a living out of this. Uh, I was under Tony Pulis. Uh, You know, he he, he went around a few clubs and and I think earned a few million. I think the rumor is that Allardyce will get three million pounds if he can keep Leeds in the premiership if he gets appointed. So, you know, it's, you know, there's a a job for anything. And um, at the end of the day, it's about staying in the Premier League. Uh, and yes, protection, you, you can talk about it, but at the end of the day, you know, it, it's, you know, it is a business. And, and as you know, I've been a player, you obviously supported by a contract. So is the manager, 
but the club has the right to, you know, not play you or but but you still got that protection and and I think that's where the protection lies is is in the contract that you you're guaranteed some sort of payoff if you get sacked or you know a compensation and and that's the risk you're taking um uh, you know as a manager uh, so I don't think we'll see a change uh, it'll stay and uh it'll give us a lot of things uh, exciting things to talk about we'll see uh, as you said, we'll see desperation uh, next year as well, and uh, you know it's great. It's great from the outside, but I know as a player, it's horrible to be involved in because it's, you know, you, you're trying to get a, a bearing on on somebody's philosophy and tactics, and then two weeks later, you 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 you're going in a totally different direction, and that's what the Leeds players will be feeling now because Allardyce will be be all about defensive structure. Not anything about forward press, you know. It'll be about hard work, keeping a clean sheet, um, and back to basics. So um, it'll be a wake-up call for a lot of Leeds players. Well, let me ask you this then: If you were in the dressing room and this change was made with only four games to go, how big a test of everyone's professionalism would this be? And would there be some players, Thomas, that you think of over the course of your career? You don't have to name names, but. Would would there be some who would have just mentally checked out and said, "This is too chaotic. This is too much of a circus. I'm not really up for this fight." Yeah, and and, and I think it's all about character. You know, I, I experienced it. Uh, you know, at some of the clubs I was at. You know, when when you start to, you know, you you come through the championship. Uh, you, you know, you, you you need a certain a certain kind of mentality to to get into the Premier League, and then. You start upgrading players. You you you, you know you, you get more and more foreigners in, and there are just some players that are they feel they're too good for 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 the hard work and the battle and rolling up their sleeves, and 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 that's the problem. Uh, sometimes so you can get this disparity in, in 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 a in a squad where you've got the old guard that, you know, the old mentality of working hard and you having to fight for every point, and then you've got. You know the, the the players that want to play fancy football and you know tiki taka and and uh, see themselves as as great technicians and and don't really want to tackle, uh, and sometimes that's what you need, especially in that dogfight. You know we, we we look at a Premier League, uh, it's so tight, and potentially just one more win can guarantee a team survival. There's four games left for 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 most, I think, all the bottom teams. You know who knows. You know there are fewer than play each other. So if you win that, you suddenly put yourself in a great position. So you know it is roll up sleeve time. And I think Sam Aldice and if the players don't realize it, you know they won't play. You know he'll suss it out quickly. He's he's an experienced manager. You know we might see a fair few changes uh, for for players that that. Um, you know, are not willing to buy in. Well, speaking of that relegation battle, Leeds, amazingly, are still out of the drop zone <laughs> because it was a bit of a heart-wrenching weekend for these Premier League teams. Nottingham Forest blowing a lead to lose late against Brentford. Everton and Leicester drew with each other, which it leaves Everton still in the drop zone. Leicester a point outside of it and above Leeds on goal difference. Thomas, uh, run the rule over that uh, bottom end of the table do you think Wolves are now safe, seven points clear, and are we basically going from West Ham down, or do you think after Wolves' heavy defeat at the weekend, they could still get dragged back into it, even though that would require uh, Nottingham Forest having to at least win two and a draw from their last three games? Oh, um, you know, I, we, we've seen anything can happen. You know, you know, Nottingham Forest suddenly beaten Brighton. You know, uh, 
I, I think the huge game this this weekend is Nottingham Forest against Southampton. You know, I, I think we'll have a lot of answers. If not, not Forest wins that game, you know, they they can suddenly see themselves uh, as as a potential survivor of this battle. Uh, you know, Leeds. You know, if Sam Allardyce take over, they obviously go to Man City. It's a very tough start, but then, you know, there, there's teams that they can beat as well. So it, it's. It's still too hard to call. I think, I think West Ham. I've said that all along. I think West Ham Wolves will be safe. Uh, you know, West Ham still got a game in hand. Uh, I, I think it's between the bottom five, and oh, it could be anyone's guess. I think Sam Southampton, unless they win against Not Forest this weekend, I think they're gone. If they don't win that game, I can't see them coming back. Um, so. Ooh, uh, I've, I've, I've called it earlier and said it was not Forrest and Everton going down and uh, they are in the bottom at the moment. So I'm, I'm just going to, not very comfortably, uh, but I'm still going to call them as, as going down. Uh, stick to your guns. <laughs> now let's talk about the title race because we're recording this on a Wednesday morning and Arsenal have just defeated Chelsea 3-1 to return to the top of the league. And uh, if you are listening to this after Manchester City has played West Ham on Thursday morning Australian time, then you'll know the result and know whether or not Manchester City went back to the top of the league. But Thomas, Honestly, even though Arsenal's top and Man City have these two games in hand, after City's comprehensive win at the Emirates Stadium, oh, sorry, at the Etihad Stadium, it feels like the title race is over, and yet the, the table and the games in hand situation tells us otherwise. But my perception is that the title race is an inevitability now. I'd be shocked if I get up tomorrow and watch West Ham take anything off Manchester City. Yeah, you, you sit there and you, you look at the games they've got coming up, uh, Man City, and, and, and it's just so tough uh, you know, to, to see them losing the form they're in. Um, you know, again, but Arsenal, fair play to them. I thought this morning, uh, phew, what a difference between two teams. You know, you had Arsenal on the front foot, confident, absolutely smashing Chelsea. And, and, and then you look at Chelsea, who's, you know, a couple of years ago won the Champions League, my God. And, and it's, it's, it's really horrible to see where, where they're at. Uh, just no direction. Uh, you know, we, we touched on Ange and, and Michael Beale saying that Ange was lucky to be in that position. God knows what how lucky Flan Lampard is to still be on that touchline because nothing has worked and he hasn't produced any results. Uh, and even this morning, there, there was not even a glimmer of hope of getting something out of that game. So, but it, it's great to see that the um, you know the the championship. I think it will go to to the wire. I think Arsenal will stick in that fight I don't think they'll lay down so it'll all be on Man City to to get the results that we expect them to get uh, and and just keep the focus as well alongside the Champions League which you know you think they're experienced enough to do and one other question Friday morning there is a massive Premier League clash it's part of a, a triple uh, header before the uh, end of the week but uh Liverpool, Fulham and Man City, West Ham on Thursday morning, but Brighton versus Manchester United on Friday morning. We talk about teams with games in hand, Thomas. Brighton at the moment, they have three games in hand on Villa and Spurs, two in hand on Liverpool, but only the one in hand on Manchester United. So their chances of catching Man U not looking fantastic. Even if they win this game, they would still be eight points behind from the same number of games played with only four games to go. So Champions League might be beyond them, 
But uh, as far as their battle for a European place, it's still a vitally important game. And Man United definitely wouldn't want to leave the door ajar for any of Liverpool or Spurs or Villa or any of the other teams looking over their shoulder from fourth place. No, for sure not. I think this is a massive game, as you said. You know, Brighton would want some revenge from uh, from that uh, FA Cup uh, penalty shootout loss. Um, and, and they seem to have had the better of, of United. Uh, I recall them winning, I think, 4-0 last season uh, at the Amex Stadium. So, you know, they, they definitely answered it against Wolves, you know, winning comfortably, obviously, six, uh, six goals. Um, a few changes uh, was made but from De Zerbi. So... You know they they need to win this one uh, to to stick in there and 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 make make those games in hand count. Um, so yeah, there's so many storylines in this Premier League. You know we we talked we just talked about the bottom, the European places, the you know the Championship, and and uh, you know Brighton. What a story that would be if they could uh, get above Liverpool or or even, you know, if everything goes right, uh, get at least close to to Manchester United and a um, and a. Um, you know, Champions League spot. So we talk about, you know, Ponce de Coglu doing well, but De Zerbi, well, what, a, what a, an absolute job he's done as well. So, uh, uh, but yeah, it'll all be judged when we get to the end of the season and Brighton need to win this one, I think, to, to have a chance. Thomas, thank you for going through all of the big talking points in the Premier League. And thanks once again for joining us. And I must say, uh, carrying the Gegen pod this week. Can you, can you help me wrangle your mates together for future episodes or what's the go? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, you know, I don't know where they've gone off to, but uh, I'm sure they'll be back uh, better and stronger next week. Uh, I can't wait uh, for the uh, the banter, which we uh, we tend to have. A big thanks to Thomas Sorensen and also our guest earlier, John McGinley. The Premier League has a busy midweek, as we were just discussing. Liverpool playing Fulham and Manchester City playing West Ham on Thursday morning. Brighton against Manchester United on Friday morning, 5 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time is the kickoff on both days. If you're listening after the midweek action, then make sure you get on to Goal Rush from midnight on Sunday as four live games launch you into the weekend. There is La Liga every day between now and Friday, May the 5th, so make sure to check out the Optus Sport website or app for broadcast details. The WSL continues. A Thursday morning clash between Chelsea and Liverpool at 4.15am Australian Eastern Standard Time. And if you're listening after Thursday, then don't miss six live games this weekend, all on Optus Sport. And the J-League and K-League continue on Optus Sport. Make sure to jump on to the Optus Sport website or app for details. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars while you're there. This has been the Optus Sport Football Podcast. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thanks for listening to The Gegenpot. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.